Goodness, wow. Uh, good evening. Tonight's reading is from the Old Testament uh, and can be found in Exodus uh, chapter 28, 1 through 10, and then skipping ahead to 29 through 30. Then, then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And so you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. They shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. And skipping ahead to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them into regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I pray that all of us would have our ears open, that we would expect to hear from you right now because you're the living God. Even if we've come to church for years and years, decades, our entire life, or whether we've only come to church a few times, you mean to speak to us. So I pray you would open our ears that we might hear you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you've heard a couple times during the service on Tuesday, uh, the Protestant Church will commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, the time where Martin Luther protested against the abuses of the Catholic Church that he saw. And uh, you may have seen in the Washington Post, there were actually several articles about the Reformation. And in that, they mentioned that it was the foundation for the modern world. So when you study the Protestant Reformation, you understand it was more than just a religious thing. It really was a cultural, political, social movement that has shaped the world that we're in now. And through it, there were several doctrines that went to shape the future world. And Kevin mentioned two of them in his prayer. Luther's passion that the word of God be given to people in a way they could understand. Not only could they hear it preached, but they could read it. Or the centrality of the gospel of grace. The idea that our acceptance before God 
completely comes by grace and our righteousness that is given to us, not that we earn. But another one of those doctrines is called the priesthood of all believers. Luther wanted the church to recover this idea that all believers, all that got united to Christ by faith, had direct access to God. They didn't have to go through a pastor or a priest to get into the presence of God. And that's really where I want to camp out for the next two sermons. We've been studying the worship of Israel, and we've been trying to, as we look at the worship of Israel, see not only where it was pointing to Jesus Christ, but how it applies to our lives, personally. Now, the idea that we could come into God's presence at any time for modern folk ain't that big of a deal. And that's because we live with a certain presumption. And that is that we can come into God's presence however we'd like, whenever we'd like. But for the Israelite, they would have been astonished by the idea because the only way they could relate and be in the presence of God was through their priest. And so what I'd like us to do is study the identity, what these priests represented, and then the duties. But the way we're going to do that may seem sort of strange. We're going to consider their clothing, what they wear. Now, it's often often been said that uh, clothes make the man or woman, right? Clothes really communicate something. Uh, Rachel Zoe, who is a fashion designer, she actually went to GW, said this, style is a way to say who you are without having to speak. Now, that might be sort of an intimidating idea. Right now, you're all being very self-conscious about what you're wearing, right? Style, it communicates. There's a funny um, illustration of this in one of the Seinfeld show episodes where, uh, you know, George shows up and and Jerry says to him, you're wearing sweatpants again? Then he says, you you know what sweatpants mean? You're telling the world... Uh, This is what he said, wait, you know the message you're sending out to the world with these sweatpants. You're telling the world, I give up. I can't compete in normal society. I'm miserable, so I might as well be comfortable. (laughs) Or uh, one of the scholars that actually writes quite a bit about clothing and fashion, Malcolm Barnett said that fashion really outlines roles, rules, rituals and responsibilities. I mean, it's a big deal, clothes. And I like that last thing because it gets at what the clothing meant to the high priest and the people of Israel. So let's take a moment and look at that. And as we do, I want us to look at three things. Uh, The clothing of the high priest, the clothing of the great high priest, and then the clothing of the priesthood of believers. So let's do that. First, we'll start with the clothes of the high priest. Now, clothes often reveal someone's job. You see someone with boots and an orange hat, it's likely they're in construction. You see someone with a belt and they've got handcuffs and a flashlight and a gun holster, likely they're in law enforcement. Clothes can tell what people do. But before we look at the clothes of the priest, I want to remind you what they did. The first thing the priests did were to act as mediators, go between, before God and his people. They represented the people to God and God to the people. That's what the priests were. Now, all the priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. We'll get back to that in a second. 
But thirdly, and really importantly, there were no self-appointed priests. You could never appoint yourself as a priest. In fact, we saw that in verse 4 where God said, you know, tell, he instructs Moses, tell Aaron and his sons that I will ordain them. And the same principle happens in the Protestant church. There are no self-appointed pastors. There shouldn't be. There are no self-appointed elders or deacons or deaconess. The idea is, as God moves through the congregation, there is also spiritual authority that is confirmed from God, not just from the individual. And so to confirm this, God wanted the ordination of the priest to be very public. He wanted the folks to know, I am the one that has called these people and they're representing me to you. He would anoint them. He would anoint the clothes. They would be ordained before everybody. And then God would tell his finest designers to all the skillful whom he had filled with the spirit of skill. By the way, this is a great little, we could hive off right now and have a sermon about why gifts and skill matter in vocation. They mattered to God. He didn't just say, anybody that feels like sewing, come forward. He said, to the skillful, and those gifts were given by the Spirit. He had them design this clothing, and the high priest was the best-dressed man in Israel. He was supposed to be. And his outfit was one of a kind. You can say, hey, where can I, get, where can I order mine? Because it was a one-of-a-kind thing that God had commissioned for a purpose. Now, I've included here an image of that, uh, and in commemoration of Halloween, we have the headless priest, the headless high priest. Uh, but here, so you can look a little bit at the, uh, the clothing. Uh, first, there was a turban, and on that turban was a diadem, a plate that said, Holy to the Lord. After that was the ephod. That's that thing that looks like sort of an apron that would go down, a long sleeveless vest, and it was attached with shoulder straps, and on there there were two stones where the 12 tribes of Israel were inscribed on the shoulders. And then on that ephod, you'll see that there was that, uh, what, I, I liked what it said in the text, it was like a checker. What did it, where was that thing? I'm taking, I'm looking. Does anybody see it to help me out here? Thank you. Verse 4, these are garments. Yes, a coat of checker work. A coat of checker work there, this breast piece. And there were three rows of four stones, and each stone represented one tribe of the tribe of Israel with these precious gems. And we're going to get into this over the next two weeks. Underneath that, there was a robe, and there was also a long, white, seamless tunic. So God is basically you know, commanding what the priest is going to wear all the way down to his underwear. This is how important this clothing will be. And in verse 5, we're told it was made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. Where did we see those colors before, for those of you that have been here? Anybody remember? Tabernacle. Thank you. Tabernacle. That's right. And so when you would look at the priest, he looked like he belonged there, but more so, he was like a mini tabernacle. He was like a walking, talking tabernacle. And there are three things we're told in the passage that his clothes were meant to preach to the people. The first thing was holiness, verse 4. 
I want you to make holy garments. Now, holy means to be set apart. And of course, his turban said holy to the Lord. So anybody that saw him would understand holiness is a big deal. And he was supposed to model obedience, but also maintain it. Model obedience in the community, but also maintain it. And this is where we get back to the origin of the priest in the tribe of Levi. And, I, and I'm going to illustrate this actually through uh, uh, the story of the Lord of the Rings. Now, in the Lord of the Rings, there's a group of men that are called the Mountain Men. And the Mountain Men, they lived in the mountains, but in the Second Age, they had pledged their allegiance to the king. What is it? Isildur? Anybody know? Y'all are quiet. Thank you. Kyle, thank you for not being Presbyterian. No, who was that? That was Dan. Thank you. Yeah, speaking of. So he had pledged his allegiance to that king, but when it came time for fighting, they broke, they broke their oath. In fact, another name for them are oath breakers. And so the king cursed them and said, may your soul never be at rest. And so they were these sort of like ghost figures. Until Aragorn shows up, fast forward, and he comes to call on their oath and says, you know, you broke your oath before, it's time to fulfill it, and you'll be at rest. And it turns out they do it. And if you've seen that scene in the movie, it's great. They just totally beat everybody up and they're great, they kill everybody, and you can't kill them because they're ghosts. I mean, it's really a, a great thing to have. And um, so here's what happens. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. And if you go to the end of Levi's life, or Jacob's life, you find that his father actually has to pronounce a curse upon him because he is unrighteously violent. Now, not all violence is unrighteous. Right now, some of you are going, oh, wait a second, but I'm going to just leave that there. But he was unrighteously violent. And his father cursed him and said, because of that, you and your kin will have no land. So they're living for years cursed. Until Moses comes off of Sinai. You remember, he goes up to get the Ten Commandments. He comes down and looks, and the people are in idolatry. His own brother leads them in false worship. And Moses, God says, I want you basically to execute the idolaters. And Moses cries out and, and, and asks people to rally to him. And guess who comes? The Levites. They fulfill their oath, but this time in a righteous way. And so as they fulfill that oath to maintain holiness, God says, you will be my priesthood. In fact, one theologian says that the Levite priests were sort of like God's bodyguards. And so, you know, when they maintained, they weren't just sort of these mealy-mouthed, you know, probably what many priests are depicted like today. I mean, they were like, you know, holy soldiers, maintaining holiness in the community. So holiness was what you'd see. The second thing is glory or dignity, verse 2. Now, that verb in Hebrew means weighty. There are some times when people put on a uniform, it's weighty, right? When a military person puts on that uniform. There's a weight. There's a gravity to it. It's not something to be taken lightly. And so when the priest had this high priest uniform on, this clothes, people understood there was a weight and majesty to this person. And it was the majesty and glory of God. But lastly, he said, I want the garments to reflect beauty. God is not a glorious, not only a glorious God and a holy God, he's a beautiful God. David said in Psalm 27, you know, my, if I could ask one thing, it would be to gaze on your beauty all the days of my life. He wanted to see God and all his splendor and majesty. 
You know, beauty has one of these things that, that when someone is dressed beautifully, we have to look at them. You know, they, they catch our eye. We can't not look at them because we hunger to see beauty. We're wowed by beauty. God wanted them to look at the priest and go, wow. Now, holiness, glory, beauty. We have a firsthand account of what it was like to see one of these high priests. And it was in the second century before Christ, second century BC. Let me read it to you. Their appearance makes one awestruck and dumbfounded. A man would think he could come out of this world into another one. I emphatically assert that every man who comes near the spectacle of what I have described will experience astonishment and amazement beyond words, his very being transformed by the hallowed arrangement of every single detail. That's what it was like to see this high priest. There was only one problem. While on the outside the high priest had that ability, on the inside he didn't. Because the high priest was a sinner, just like you and I. The high priest didn't have the power to transform those that he looked at. As you go through the history of the priesthood, it gets pretty depressing. The first high priest, Aaron, leads the people in false worship. And then two of his sons offer uh, illegitimate fire on the altar, and God destroys them. You move up later, and you have Eli in the book of Samuel. His sons are so immoral, they're actually sitting, you know, where the tent entrance, and they're seducing women. And as you move down the line, you find the priesthood finally breaks down, and it's one of the main reasons that people are led into exile by God. The clothes couldn't make the man. The clothes couldn't transform. There's a picture of this in the book of Zechariah, where Zechariah has a vision of Joshua the high priest. And he's standing before God in his linen, his linen tunic. Now, there was one day a year the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies. What day was that? Day of Atonement, you're right. But on that Day of Atonement, he was required just to wear his linen tunic this white linen tunic, and it was supposed to represent righteousness before God. So he, there he is, basically bare before God, but righteous. And so Joshua is in this vision, appearing before God, but his tunic is filthy. Actually, the word that's used is human excrement. I mean, that's gross, right? He is filthy and stinky with his own sins and the sins of the people. And then Satan approaches the throne and says, you know, he begins to accuse him. And what we're told is uh, the Lord then says, he rebukes Satan and says, I want you to bring this priest a new robe, a white robe. Now, how in the world is he able to do that? Because the sins are real. Well, that moves us into the second part, the clothing of the great high priest. We've been learning as we studied Israel's worship that the high priest uh, did for Israel what Jesus Christ does for believers in heaven. The high priest did for Israel on earth what Jesus Christ did for believers in heaven. The high priest was the shadow. Jesus Christ is the real thing. And he performs this by filling three offices, the prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the ultimate. See, part of the issue was this. In the Old Testament, you would have a good priest, but then you'd have a lousy king. Or you'd have a good king or you'd have a lousy prophet. It was never, you know, you never had three that lined up in a row. <laughs> you can never hit the jackpot because there's always sin. 
And so when Jesus comes, he fulfills all of those. And since we're focusing on the priest, there are a few things, a few ways he does that. First of all, he is the faithful high priest. You see, priests often fell into temptation, but more so, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest didn't just offer a sacrifice for the Israelites, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself, because he was a sinner. Right? And so the sacrifices would have to go on and on and on. Now, Jesus Christ didn't wear a high priest. Uh, clothing outwardly. He didn't need to because he had it inwardly. He was holy inwardly. And when he offered his sacrifice because he was sinless, it wasn't for himself. It could be just for the people. He was giving his life as an atonement for sinners like you and I. He was the substitute sacrifice. But more so, we're told because he knew what it felt like to be tempted. I think this is so important. You know, think about what it feels like for you to be tempted in that one area that just really gets you. That one area over and over of your life that causes other people pain, causes you pain, it dogs you. And what it's like to be in that place. I mean, it's wrenching. Some of us have struggled with these things for decades. We weep, we moan, we groan. And we're told that Jesus, as a high priest, doesn't go, oh, come on, get it together. He sympathizes. Because he knows what it's like to run the gamut of temptation all the way to the end. But he didn't sin. You have a high priest that can sympathize more than anybody of what it's like for the struggle you're having right now. But he's also a righteous high priest. As I said on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would wear his linen, but he wasn't really righteous. Now, on the Day of Atonement, the day that Jesus Christ was crucified, the Gospel of John tells us that the soldiers took his clothing. Remember, they put a purple robe around him. They took his clothing and they divided it, except for one thing, his white linen tunic. It was seamless, and they thought, well, let's not rip that thing. But they still stripped him of it. But even as Jesus was stripped of his tunic and he was crucified in his naked glory, he was holy and righteous. He was the radiance of God and the glory of God, the holiness of God, the beauty of God. Even to the world, he was a sinner. He was a blasphemer. As Isaiah said, he would be so hideous we couldn't even look at him. He still was the righteous one. We're told he who had no sin became sin for us so you could be the righteousness of God. You could be seen as righteousness. And that if anybody sins, we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus the righteous one. You know, a good defense really makes a difference. You get a lousy defense, you may end up in jail. A good defense could get you off. Jesus gives the best defense. Because when you go before God, he's not, you know, in the end, when people stand before God, there's going to be two scenarios. One's going to be a scenario of people trying to defend themselves and be their own priest, plead their own case. Have you ever seen someone keep trying to defend themselves when they know they're wrong and guilty? It's pathetic. It's sad and pathetic. For some people, that will be the case. 
But for others, they'll find Jesus Christ pleading his righteousness in their stead. The high priest who pleads my righteousness, Father. He's a high priest that presents us before God. And he's constantly doing that. There's never a day where righteousness is not associated with the name of a believer in Christ. There's not a day. But lastly, he's a forever priest. Jesus did not come from the line of Levi. That was important because the line of Levi was corrupted. He actually came from a kingly line. Judah, but even going back, he came from the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is this sort of mysterious figure in the Old Testament. Abraham's coming back from pain, you know, from a battle, and he's met this one king, and he meets this royal priest in the middle of nowhere. And we don't know much about him. We don't get where he's from or his lineage or anything like that, but Abraham bows to him, and he blesses Abraham. And by doing that, Abraham is saying, you're greater than me. What's the point here? The New Testament will say that Jesus is in that order. Melchizedek is, in a sense, an eternal priest in the impression that he gives. And so Jesus Christ, as a high priest, is constantly interceding. Let me ask you this simple question. If you're here and you, you believe that Jesus is alive, if you believe that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, do you believe that he is constantly, that he lives to pray for you? Because that's what the book of Hebrews says, that he lives to intercede. He was resurrected to pray for you. That's how important prayer is. Of all the things that could say that Jesus is doing up in heaven, he is praying for you, the Son of God. You know, sometimes Presbyterians joke and we say, if we really need a prayer answered, we're going to ask a Pentecostal. You know, have someone that really seems to have prayer, you know, have faith. But all of us kind of do that, you know. Maybe you're not even a Christian here and you're like, man, I'm really desperate. I'm going to call that person I know that seems religious. Or you're, you're here in the congregation and you're like, I'm going to get this person to pray for me. But because when they pray, you, you ever prayed with those people and they just pray with faith. You know, and you're always like, man, I want to get them to pray for me. That's Jesus praying for you. But now let's move into the clothing of the priesthood of the believers to conclude. Now, the New Testament says that when you join yourself in faith to Christ, he dresses you. You become clothed in Christ. You become clothed in the glory, beauty, righteousness of Christ. But what does that clothing mean? The Apostle Peter gives us a little bit of an insight. Listen to this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Couple things to close, significant about the clothing that believers wear, the priesthood of all believers. First of all, it's esteem. He says, chosen, royal priesthood. Anybody here come from royalty? Anybody here come from royalty? Now, now I'm going to do this. Uh, any Christians here? You should have raised your hand. You come from royalty. It was a trick question. You come from royalty. 
You're a chosen person, the chosen race. You are God's royalty. And that has a lot to do with our perspective. I think a lot of times I can fall into being a Charlie Brown Christian. Uh, And maybe that's you, you know. You you just feel like you kind of have this perspective that, you know, other people, they're chosen and favored, but not so much me. Things don't go so well for me. Uh, there, there's this funny Peanuts cartoon where uh, Lucy and Linus and Charlie are laying on the ground looking up at clouds. And Lucy says, what do you see, Linus? And Linus is like, you know, I see a map of the Caribbean. I see this sculptor from this great artist. You know, and then he even goes biblical. It's kind of wild. He goes, I see Stephen being stoned. And Jesus standing at his right hand. They're like, whoa, Linus is... Linus is going out with his faith. You know, he sees all these marvelous things. He says to Charlie Brown, what do you see? And he goes, well, I was going to say I saw a ducky and a horse, but I changed my mind. (laughs) You know, of course, Charlie Brown, he's not going to see the big vision. Is that you? You know, when you pray and you think about your life, you're like, I'm the ducky and the horse. And I'm not even sure about that. Stop thinking that way. It's not you. If you're a believer in Christ, you're chosen, holy, and favored before God. Second thing is identity. Uh, You notice this thing where we read, once you weren't a people, now you are. Once you hadn't had mercy, now you have. Christians are supposed to adopt this, I once was, but now I am attitude. I once was, but now I am. Have you made that transition? Do you really think there was a definitive change in your life? Or has it been just sort of cruising this way? Was there a, there was, and I'm not, you know, for you, I'm not talking about do you know the day that happened. That doesn't matter. Now I'm asking you. This is the day that matters. This is the day of the Lord. Some of you probably think more about, like, you know, your eight-year-old prayer to know Jesus than you do today. Some of you don't know, but this is the point. Do you in your mind go, I once was, but now I am? He says that about darkness, right? You might see darkness, but you're not lost in darkness because you once were in darkness, but now you've been delivered into light. In fact, the book of Ephesians would say you are light. It may be that you once didn't feel like you belong, but now you are a people of his possession You belong to him. We need to change our minds as a priesthood. But lastly, calling. We're told to proclaim the excellency, the greatness and the grace of God. You know, I probably spend more time trying to trumpet my excellencies more than God's. You know, that's part of what we do in this city. We try to find ways where we can, you know, promote and trumpet who we are in our greatness. But we, as priests, are to live a different way. We're to live to praise and declare the grace and mercy of God. So if you are a Christian here and people know you're a Christian, they will say they're always talking about God's grace and mercy in their life. They're always talking about that more than the issues that they're about or the theology they really dig. That's what they talk about. That's when they seem to get quiet. That's when their eyes seem to well up. That's when they seem to get soft. That's when they seem to get beautiful to me. Talking about the grace and the mercy of God. And that, of course, leads us to live 
is a holy nation. Peter frames his little discussion by saying, put away envy, put away malice, live in a way where the world actually goes, wow. This is what the priesthood is. And you know something, as priests, we have a role not only to maintain that holiness in our own lives, but also in the community. Now, maybe you're not going to go after someone with a sword. You may go after them with a sword of the, the word, the spirit. We need to help one another maintain holiness in this community. So the first thing we learn about the priesthood and about clothing is pretty simple. Uh, you could not be dressed any better than you are now. If you have faith in Christ, you could not be dressed any better than you are right now, and you never will. Silly little thing I do. Every now and then, when I put on some nice clothes, and if I'm feeling handsome, okay, I'm feeling, you know, or maybe, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I have to put on my preacher's robe for some reason. I don't really do that much, and don't ask me to. But the point is this, you know, do this. Next time you really deck yourself out, I want you to say, man, this looks great, but my undergarment looks really great. <laughs> it's the righteousness of Christ. You know, it's the clothing of Christ. All right, let's, let's wrap it up. Father, thank you for uh, what we learn through all of your word. Thank you for the seamless tapestry of your word, uh, Old Testament into New Testament. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Glenn.